begin this series. This is the longest series that I have done in this church on the book of Revelation. This is now, we're in part seven now, and we're going to wind it up in two weeks for part eight. I have not done an eight-part series ever, uh, so this is kind of a challenge for me, and the name of the series is, of course, All Things New. Uh, every episode is posted on our website, so you can catch up however you want to and whenever you want to. And the, the argument that I'm trying to put forth here is that this book, while it is for many people a very strange, very unusual, very weird book, if you want to use that term in the Bible, there's no book like it in the Bible, uh, this book is more relevant than it ever has been before. When you look at the present status of planet Earth, when you look at the political situation, when you look at the, the wars and the conflicts that are happening, when you look at the rapid cultural change and the, the change in moral values and the change in technology, when you look at all of these things, when you look at the persecution that's happening uh, worldwide to believers in Jesus, in the church worldwide, not, not just looking at North America, but around the world, you see an incredible relevance to this really, really strange book, if you know how to read it. Uh, and we're doing it in an unorthodox way here. We're doing big, big chunks at once. So we're covering three chapters in one shot uh, every time that we meet. And of course, we don't read every part of every chapter, but to try and figure out the general idea and the general theme of what the author is talking about. And this is the way that people would have read it back then. This is not a book that people read by having a stack of commentaries next to them or by putting on their code-breaking glasses and trying to interpret every bizarre image and every word and trying to read it backwards and, you know, upside down and in all these different languages. You know, that's what we do today. Uh, they didn't have television back then. They weren't watching CNN and reading the book of Revelation. Most of the people couldn't even read back then and across the Roman Empire. Maybe they heard it as it was dictated to them by somebody. Maybe it was memorized and dictated, but very few people even had a copy back in the first century of the book of Revelation. Uh, this is a very strange book in that it is a an apocalypse and remember that word means you kind of peel back the curtain and see what's behind and the idea of that kind of literature was to give people hope when they were in desperate circumstances to try and show them the unseen world and what was going on behind the scenes so to speak that's apocalyptic literature it also has prophecy in it uh, some predictive prophecy in it and it is also a letter addressed to seven churches, so it is a bizarre blend of literature. There's nothing like it from that period of history in the world, zero. So it's very, very strange, very unusual book. When we pick it up and we read it today, we wonder if the writer is on some kind of drug, you know, as he writes. It's so strange. It's so bizarre. The imagery is so out of this world. It almost looks like a, like a strange Hollywood movie. Today, the section that we're going to be dealing with is like rated R. It is the most graphic, 
uh, very hard to even read um, uh, section of the book of Revelation uh, that we're going to get into today. Last week, we looked at Revelation 13, 14, and 15 in this period of time called the tribulation by most uh, most scholars use that term today. And we saw the rise of this, this leader uh, who's called many things, but one of the things he's called is the Antichrist. And we saw a few things uh, of last week. Number one, ungodly leadership rises in a moral vacuum. And this we see even as we survey history. You look at nations, you look at even organizations around the world, and when there is a moral vacuum and when the organization or the nation has lost its way completely morally, you tend to see ungodly leadership arise. And this Antichrist figure is going to be ungodly with a capital U. I mean, this is, this is the epitome of ungodliness, this leader that will arise, and there's all kinds of descriptions about him. Uh, in the book of Revelation in chapter 13, and uh, we also see him in Daniel chapter 7. We see him in something that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, and we talked about this problem of evil. And in our culture, no matter how smart we think we are, no matter how we can try to explain all of life and we say well it's all evolved and it's all we have a naturalistic explanation for everything and you know we have all these objections about faith and about christianity no matter how we do all of that we all have to deal with the problem of evil and the antichrist is you know evil on steroids and we all have to deal with that problem and even when we have little children it, we have to tell them, you know, don't talk to strangers. And we have to, what we're doing is we're trying to teach them that there is evil in this world. And we can try and rationalize it. We can try to explain it all kind, in all kinds of different ways. But the Bible calls it what it is and says, yes, there is evil in this world. Yes, there is a figure who will arise. Yes, he is empowered by the devil himself. And yes, there is that reality. And that's the only way that we can explain accurately what happens on planet Earth. There is an evil that is running wild. And we have to call it what it is, and we have to acknowledge it. And we also have to realize that Jesus is the answer to it. And Jesus has a plan and a whole thing that he is working out. Revelation chapter 14, you see the whole 144,000 super saints, as I call them. You can listen to it online. And this message uh, from the three angels and this harvest of judgment that takes place. And then in Revelation 15, there is an announcement that there are going to be seven final plagues that will overtake uh, this ungodly world that is pictured in this book. And God's wrath, his plan, is going to come to completion. And the idea there is that nothing takes God by surprise. Nothing takes Jesus by surprise. No, no work of even the Antichrist himself can stop the plans and the purposes of God. So we move into Revelation 16 to 18, and you, I'm telling you, it is R-rated. Like, even trying to read this, um, it makes you blush a little bit because the descriptions are so unbelievably graphic. So you look into Revelation 16, for example, and you see these bowls of wrath 
are being poured out and there's these seven plagues that come on the planet. You know, then I heard a loud voice from the temple uh, and saying to the seven angels, go and pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. And you see one after the other after the other and these calamities happen. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land and ugly and painful sores broke out on the people who had worshipped the mark of the beast. Again, whatever that mark is, we're not sure. And worshipped his image. Uh, wow, I mean, it's a graphic description. Uh, and then you continue. The second angel poured out his bowl and it turned Turn the sea into blood. Ugh. I mean, it's R-rated. You read this stuff. Turned it into blood, and the blood came like that of a in, of a dead man, and everything died in the sea. You say it's so gross. I mean, it gets even worse. The third angel pours out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of waters, and guess what? They turn into blood too, and everything dies. And then you hear uh, 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 the angel in charge say, "You are just in these judgments." You who are and who were the Holy One, because you have so judged. And then you see the fourth angel pours out his bowl on the sun. And we talk about heat that we're experiencing today. Well, that's nothing compared to the heat that's happening here in this passage. The sun was given power to scorch people with fire. I mean, it's so graphic. Uh, they, they, they were seared by the intense heat. And they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. The fifth angel pours out his bowl on the throne of the beast, this antichrist figure, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates over there in the Middle East, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for these kings, whoever they will be from the east. And then you see uh, the, there's a seventh bowl that's poured out, and uh, uh, there's an earthquake, and there's hail that comes down uh, the size of um, their, their 100 pound hail. I mean, it's incredibly graphic, and it doesn't stop there. Um, you, you read into Revelation chapter 17, and I'm glad that the kids are, are over at, uh, at Game On today in number five, but you see an image described there in Revelation 17, and you have a woman that is there on this, this, uh, this beast, and she's riding the beast. It is a very, very famous passage of scripture. And you see, uh, the writer says, come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute, he calls her, who sits on many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Oh, I mean, it's so graphic, right? The angel carried me away in the spirit into a desert, and there I saw a woman, picture this, uh, on a scarlet beast. And you see all these images in the book of Revelation, but this, this one takes the cake. You know, she's dressed in purple and scarlet, the colors of riches back in the day, and was glittering with gold and precious stones and pearls, and she has a cup in her hand 
filled with abominable things, the writer says, and the, and the filth of her adulteries. And you look at this, and it's so harsh, very, very strong. And this woman represents something, and this beast represents something, and the, the writer tries to explain what all this is. Uh, and then at the end of the chapter, the writer says to us, the woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. And in that day, that would be a reference to Rome and the whole Roman Empire, really. And then you see in chapter 18, it gets even worse, and you see the fall of this Babylon, as it's termed. But he's referring to Rome there and the Roman Empire. The people in the first century would certainly have thought of it that way, and this is probably a double reference to what was happening back then and what will happen in the future. And you see there's this series of, of calamities that come upon this, this Babylon, Babylon uh, uh, mention, which again is Rome, and you see that it's fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great at the beginning of the chapter, and you see all these woes, and it says, woe, 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 great city, in one hour your doom has come, and it talks about fire, and it talks about destruction, and you read these three chapters, and you're like, wow, is this ever strong? I mean, I challenge you, go home and read the three chapters, you're going to be left scratching your head saying, Wow, this is so, so strong. Why does it have to be so strong and so graphic? And you start to picture what these things look like, and it's really like R-rated, extreme violence. You know, you've got this, this woman who's, who's pictured as a, as a prostitute of all things, and you say, what, what does this have to do with my life? I mean, this is just wild. So it brings up a question. And this is one of the biggest questions that people have about Christianity and about the Bible. It's one of the biggest objections that people have. And it's the question of, is God really fair? Is God really just? I mean, you look at this wrath that's poured out on the earth. You look at the, what's happening around the globe in this, in this period of time that's being referred to here. And you see this kind of graphic violence and you say, wow, is this really fair? Like, is this a God that I want to serve? And what is this all about? And the question shifts to another kind of question, and it goes like this. How could a loving God send someone to hell? This is a question that is often, often asked. Because when you read the book of Revelation, you clearly see that there's descriptions of heaven and there's descriptions of hell, and they are very, very graphic. And some people are going one way, and some people are going the other way. And you say, well, how can a loving God treat people that way? And is God really fair? Is he really just? Or is this just insanity that we're reading about here? And this is a very, very good question and a very valid question. Uh, so I want to look at this using these three chapters and a little bit more of what we looked at in the book of Revelation. Just give you three things to think about when you look at that question. Number one, there is an awareness that these people have in the book of Revelation and that really, if you really think about it, that we have as well in the modern age. And that is that we are aware that there is something beyond we are aware of it. We don't know what to call it. We, we have questions about it. 
but it's not like we're all going to somehow be surprised uh, when we die that there's something on the other side. It's not going to be like, oh, I never knew or even thought or even questioned whether or not I have an eternal soul. That's a totally new idea to me. No, for most people, there is a general sense that there could be something on the other side. Uh, I know this because of the amount of people that I've interacted with in funerals. You know what the prevailing thought in most funerals are, whether the people are Christians or they're of no faith or they're whatever? It's, well, so-and-so is in a better place, right? We say that. Or maybe so-and-so who passed away, they're an angel now. Or, you know, we say things like, well, I could sense so-and-so speaking to me from beyond. You know, we have all these beliefs and these things that we have created, but I've never, ever done a funeral or been to a funeral or talked with people at a funeral, and they said, well, the person is gone, finished, end of story, no sense of afterlife, zero. I have never heard that sentiment. There's always a hope or a glimmer of hope that there could be something on the other side. This person could be somewhere else. There could be something. So we wonder about this. It's not as if we're all going to be taken by surprise when we pass through the curtain of death. We all have some sort of vague awareness of what it is. And you see that these people in the book of Revelation certainly had an awareness that there was something beyond and that there was an eternity uh, beyond the grave. Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Uh, you see there people, the souls of people who have gone to the other side. He opened the fifth seal. This is uh, an angel, and they're opening seals at the beginning of the book. You can listen online. And I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony that they maintained. And they cried out, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth? So these are people, these are the souls of people who have lost their lives, and yet they're alive somewhere on the other side, clearly. Uh, Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude. These are people in heaven, a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb, which is Jesus, and they're holding white robes, and they're holding palm branches, and they cry out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. These are, again, people who, are, who have stepped across the curtain and are on the other side. Revelation 13 uh, and verse 8, you see it again there. Um, he was given, uh, am I in the right? Yes, all, all inhabitants of the earth will worship. I'm sorry, my eyes are starting to go here. All the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. We looked at this last week. And those whose names have not been written in the book of life 
belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. What is this book of life? How does one get their name written in it? The, the, the implication is there's something beyond the grave. And when your name is in that book, you're going to be in good shape when you pass to the other side. Revelation 14 verses 9 to 11. Again, we looked at this last week. Uh, a third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast, this is that antichrist figure or his image or receives this mark on his forehead or his hand, he too will drink of the wine of the fury of God and he will be tormented. Wow. I mean, it's a hellish description with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the lamb and their smoke rises of torment rises forever and ever you say wow this is so so strong but these people had an awareness of it the readers of this book in the first century had an awareness of it there is definitely something beyond the grave and we're not going to be able to plead that excuse that we didn't know we didn't think about it we didn't question it i mean there's so there's so much information now so many people claiming to have you know near death experiences and all of this and it it gets us interested it gets us thinking about these things but very few of us really do something serious about it but we can't claim ignorance on the subject is my point so when your time comes and when my time comes i won't be able to say to god well i didn't know i had an infinite soul because he'll look back at me and say you sure you didn't didn't you think about all these things for all the years that you lived? Do you understand my point? We cannot claim that as an excuse. We can't say, well, God, it's not fair. It's not fair. You didn't tell me. You didn't tell me. No, he's made it, I think, fairly clear that there is something on the other side. And many, many religious views will teach it. Many philosophies, you see it in the pop culture. You see it in the media. You see it everywhere. We wonder, we question, and nobody can say with conviction, there is nothing there because nobody has come back to describe it. So this is something that we have to, we have to acknowledge. Number two, there is an ability that we all have, according to the book of Revelation, to choose repentance or rebellion against God. We all have a choice, and we can make that choice and are confronted with that choice even in this life. So you look just in Revelation chapter 16, and you see over and over again these people who are faced with these plagues, which are really, I mean, indescribable if they, if they are going to happen the way that it's written here. You've got some pretty... Pretty amazing things that are happening. I mean, they're, they're catastrophic beyond measure. And yet you have people who refuse to repent, who refuse to say, no, I, I will stop worshiping this antichrist figure and I will turn and I will worship God. No, they are refusing to do that no matter what happens. Now, there's a, there's a backstory to Revelation 16 that you may have thought of already. Um, these plagues that you see, does anyone know there, there's something in the Bible that's strikingly familiar to these plagues? Does anyone know? It's in another place in the Bible. Do you know where? Who said? 
Yeah, Exodus, that's right, yeah. So if you're reading this in the first century, um, and you're reading about these plagues, and you start to read what they are, immediately your mind goes back to the book of Exodus. You know, the 10 plagues when Moses wanted to take the people out of Egypt. Do you remember? Any of you ever seen, you know, the movies and the Prince of Egypt and the Ten Commandments and all of that? Can you think of any of the plagues? Can you name any of them for me? Any of them? Just one. Locusts. Yeah, that's one of them. Book of Exodus. Pardon me? Yeah, fire from the sky. Yeah, pretty bad. Pretty bad. Any other ones? Pardon me? Flies, yeah. Flying around. Pardon me? Frogs, yeah. <laughs> Reedy, yeah, frogs. Yeah, any others? Blood in the sea. Oh, it's here. That's here in Revelation. Yeah. So what's going on here is, is, is quite striking. Back in the book of Exodus, what do you have? You have Moses going to Pharaoh and saying, God says you need to let these people go. And they need to leave Egypt and they need to go into the promised land. And what does God do to Pharaoh? He hardens Pharaoh's heart, right? So he, he in a sense, creates a condition where the leader, the Pharaoh, is going to resist God. And he's going to resist the command of God. And there's something, there's a backstory to that too, because all these plagues uh, back in the book of Exodus, they all have to deal with the different gods and the pantheon of gods that those people had. And so what the God of Israel is doing is he's kind of putting those gods to shame. Uh, and each plague is shaming one of those gods, you know, the god of locusts, the god of frogs, the god of flies, the god of fire. And he's shaming each one of those gods. And he's, he's hardening the heart of Pharaoh so Pharaoh will resist and rebel against the command of Moses to let the people go. But here in the book of Revelation, you see similar things. And for sure, your mind is going, wow, that sounds suspiciously like what went on in the book of Exodus, except this time it's happening, happening across the globe. But look what's happening. No one's heart is being hardened. Okay? God isn't hardening the people's hearts. The people's hearts are so hard already that they refuse to repent. They are confronted with a decision. They continue to refuse to repent. You see it in Revelation 16 several times there. There's a choice that they have to make, and they continually make their choice to go against God rather than to go for God. And the same thing happens today. Uh, people are very, very free to do what they want to do with the message of Jesus and the salvation story. God does not remove a person's ability to choose today. Uh, we have to make a decision. And you can't, you can't sit on the fence. I mean, here you have, you have Jesus, you know, uh, confronting you. You have to make a decision. Either you say no or you say yes. But the very message of Jesus is not one where you just say, oh, well, who cares? You can't, you can't really do that, right? You either got to say yes or you've got to say no, but you can't really say who cares? And here you have a choice, and every person has that ability to choose. The question is, what choice are we making? So when we get to the other side, as it were, we can't say, well, God, you didn't give me a choice. 
Well, no, we're confronted with choice all the time. The question is, are we going to repent or are we going to rebel? And that's on us. That's not on God. And the third thing that we see here is the availability of the message of salvation. So even in chapter 18, this super graphic chapter, you know, R-rated and all these woes about uh, uh, Babylon, a.k.a. Rome and its destruction and all of this, you still have this message still coming out from God, a message of repentance in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 18. Uh, Come out of her, my people so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. This is essentially a message of repentance. The people still have an opportunity to say, God, I want to follow you, and I want to stop following this antichrist figure. There's still a choice that people can make. The message of salvation is still out there for people to respond to, but the question is, Why haven't they responded? But they can't say, well, I don't have the message. I didn't have the message. I mean, that's what the purpose of the church is, friends. Can I just tell you, like, us shifting from Saturday to Sunday is not for kicks. Um, It's going to cost us more money to to meet where we're going to meet uh, over at that hotel. It's not because we want to spend more money. It's because we want to reach more people. It's because the gospel would be a little bit more accessible in this culture on a Sunday morning than a Saturday morning. It's because we're listening to you and you who are inviting friends and family and neighbors on a Saturday morning. You always get the question, why Saturday morning? Oh, Saturday morning. Saturday morning. How come? It's never, oh, yeah, I'll be there. It's always, why do you do it on Saturdays, you see? And so if we can reach more people by shifting a day, by shifting a location, good. I mean, we're not here to form some kind of a club. We're here to reach the one who is far from God, that together we would become passionate followers of Jesus. We're not doing the event that we're doing next week uh, because we can brag and boast that we're handing out school bags. It's a way to confront people with the message of the gospel and to present them with something that they perhaps have not heard in that way. Maybe they've heard of a Jesus before, but maybe not the Jesus of the Bible. And that's the purpose of the church. Uh, That is your role and your purpose as people who call themselves Christians and who are part of a church community. It's to reach other people who have what you have. It's to tell them the good news of Jesus. It's not to, you know, have a nice Christian club. Do you understand what I'm saying? Um, And if a church is going to be effective, it's got to be about the message of salvation and bringing that message to other people. And regardless of where you're at in your walk of faith today, regardless, um, when someone asks you, you know, tomorrow morning, what did you do yesterday? You know, just by saying, well, I went to church. Do you not realize what a witness that is? Even in this culture where 99% of the people who you will meet tomorrow morning do not attend church at all on a regular basis. And just you saying, I went to church is a witness to them. And if they say, well, what'd you do there? 
And you say, I don't remember. <laughs> well, at least you're saying something. You know, what did the preacher preach on? I'm not sure, but, uh, you know, why don't you come and check it out? Or why don't you come to our event or whatever? Just doing something like that, my friends, God can use. You say, well, I don't know if I'll have the right answers that are questions. At least say something. God can use your mistakes. I mean, there's so few people who, who are doing what you are doing today. You have to realize that in this place, in this province, you are definitely the weird and strange minority. And that means any time you talk about your experience with God, any time in any way, God can use that in ways that you would not even believe. Friends, I have made so many mistakes when trying to share my faith. I can remember sometimes going home from, from various jobs that I've held, and right now I'm bivocational, and I do a few hours a week in a, in a secular job, and I, can, I, I have experiences where I come home and say, oh, I shouldn't have said that, shouldn't have done that, that was a terrible witness, that doesn't make sense, I should have said it differently, I should have done it differently. Friends, do you know God can even use your mistakes? If you're just honest about who you are and you live your life in front of people, you can be a witness for Jesus. Even if you think you are ineffective, the Holy Spirit is using what you are doing in ways that you wouldn't even believe. So we cannot make these excuses to God. We cannot say, well, God, you know, I didn't really know that there was something beyond the grave. I had no cognizance of it. I had no understanding of it. So we can't really use that as an excuse. We, we can't turn around and say, well, we didn't have a choice. Uh, we, we never had the opportunity to choose. Uh, we can't say that the message is not available. You know, Jesus said that before he returns that his, his name would be spread everywhere in the globe that everyone would hear about him and the full measure of people that can hear will hear. And that's, friends, we're nearing that time. I mean, we, the, the name of Jesus, you think about it 2,000 years ago, here you have Jesus making this prediction. And 2,000 years ago, still, uh, the, the, the church continues to grow, continues to expand. The name of Jesus continues to go from nation to nation to nation. It's amazing to be able to say that. Uh, so when you start to think about it, the excuses that we make up really betray that our question, is God fair? Can a loving God send someone to hell? Really what those things show and what they betray is the question should be directed more to us. It shouldn't be to challenge God and God's nature and God's character. It should be, well, what have I done? What have I done with what God has shown to me? What have I done with how God has revealed himself to me? Instead of me accusing God of injustice, perhaps I should look in the mirror and wonder what I have done with what he has shown me. So even as you read these chapters, you know, 16, 17, and 18, and you pull your hair out and say, it seems like this God is so cruel and so mean, remember when you look at it that you're dealing with a, a time where the people have made a very uh, clear decision, and it is utter and complete rebellion against God, and it's war against him right until the end. So here you have humanity who will live on forever, who makes 
a decision to say, no, God, not your way, our way. And then when you start to see what happens, you say, well, are we really just in accusing God? Or maybe we should look in the mirror, okay? I'm going to do something that I do from time to time here, given the subject matter and still relatively small crowd uh, and how intense this is. And next week, we'll have the outreach. And um, so I, I'm going to do something a little different and, and take questions that you may have. I haven't done this yet for Revelation. This is part seven. We've got one more part to go. Uh, so I wonder if you've been around for the last few weeks in and out and you say, you know, I really have to ask this burning question that has come to mind uh, as you've been teaching through the book of Revelation. We have a little bit of time. I'm wondering if there's anyone who's bold enough uh, to slip up a hand or shout out a question today. Yes, Ritu. It's a good question. Uh, so if you didn't hear, she said that she has heard that people have said that in this time that we see in the book of Revelation, presumably most of it speaks of a seven-year span of time that we call the tribulation. It's probably from chapter 6 to chapter 19. And the question is, well, will more people be Christian than not Christian? Um, I think when I read these chapters, it would actually be the reverse um, you do see there seems to be a remnant of faith and of people who, who uh, continue and persevere in their faith in Christ. But that appears to be the minority because they're being told you need to have patient endurance and so on. And the way that it's written and when you read the whole thing, you get the impression these people seem to be a minority. But the majority of the planet is in total unbelief, total disbelief, and for the most part, a complete lack of repentance. So I would say it's the reverse. I wouldn't say that you have a huge amount of people automatically coming to faith. But I know where your view, where, or where, not your view, but where that view comes from. Um, because there are various ways of interpreting this book, okay? I'm teaching it one way. Um, the way that I think it should be taught. But there are many other ways that it is taught, and those ways are quite acceptable within the sort of pale of Orthodox Christianity. So I look at this, and I'm a futurist. So I say that, yes, this had a relevance for sure to the people in the past who read it, but it also has a relevance to the people in the future because I see too much that's that looks like it must be predicting something global that takes place on the entire planet beyond what they would have been experiencing in first century Rome and Jerusalem and all of that. So I look at it from a futurist perspective. There are some who don't look at it that way. Uh, in preterism, what, what they do is they say all of this took place before the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, which would have been to those people, somewhat like the end of the world, when the Romans came in and they destroyed the city and set it on fire, destroyed the temple, which has never been rebuilt, there are, there are many who interpret this entire book as referring to that event. 
Um, and so they don't look at it with a futurist perspective like we would. Uh, they look at it from a preterist or looking at it from the past. That's okay. I mean, uh, you know, God's not going to say, well, you misinterpreted the book of Revelation. Sorry, you're inadmissible for salvation. Okay. He's not going to say that. Uh, on the other hand, I think that that view has a lot of problems when you really read the book from cover to cover. But that view and the question that you brought up is in line with that view. And it, actually, it is a more common view than a futurist view. Like the way, that, the way that our church believes it or the way that I believe it as a pastor is actually not as popular as the other. So um, regardless, I, I think there's lessons we can learn from the book, whatever position you take. Is that a clear answer? Clear but sad. Well, I mean, you're looking at you're looking at in 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 a way a very a very sad book to some degree until you get to the very end, which is why I call it all things new. You see, this whole thing is a big story of redemption, and in the end, and when we when we do the last part, which I guess we'll do next Sunday, Saturday we won't touch it given the crowd that's here. But Sunday, we will, we will finish it. And chapters 19 to 22 are filled with hope because there is a transformation that's going to take place and a redemption of this earth that is going to take place, you see. Uh, but there's a whole lot of problems, you know, for most of this book. It's extremely graphic. A lot of it is like R-rated I mean, you, you, can't even, you can't even sit down with your little kid and read it to them. You're going to scare them out of their, out of their brains, right? Um, so, but that's life. And a, a lot of times, you know, the, the consequence of sin is very, very scary. Um, and you see it in a global sense here. So short answer to your question, I think it's the reverse. I think there will be a very small minority of faith on the planet in this time, in the future. Rather than a majority, it's going to be a minority. Amazing question. Any other ones? Ask anything, anything you want. It can be related or somewhat related to the book. But I've often found people are so, so confused on this book of Revelation. They don't even read it. When the Bible says you'll be blessed if you read it out loud. Imagine. Yeah, oh, that got your fancy. Yes. We'll do, we'll do the husband and the wife. Uh, a Christian will introduce the Antichrist. I don't, I don't see that uh, when, I, when I read the book of Revelation or, or any other references to the Antichrist in the New Testament or Old Testament for that matter. I don't see that. He, he, uh, he, he arrives on the scene in, in moral chaos. Um, and he, he comes on, in the scripture, he's pictured as... The man with all the answers. Uh, he's the man who's going to solve the problems in the Middle East. He's the man who's going to regulate the economy. He's the man who has the answer for everything. He's the man who deceives everybody. He's the man who has got supernatural qualities to him. Like literally supernatural qualities to him. He can do anything. He, he, he doesn't really need an introduction in particular from a Christian. So I don't see that. 
I'm not saying it won't happen that way. I mean, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of speculation involved in this, but I don't see that. Um, and I think when you survey history, um, you, you, see, you see ungodly leadership comes taking advantage of a situation. You don't have some Christian person introducing that ungodly leadership. Usually it comes because it's taking advantage and sees an opportunity. And here you have a ripe opportunity. The world is in absolute moral chaos. There's, there's problems everywhere. There's cosmic problems everywhere. And what do you have? You have a leader who arises, and man, he is going to capture the attention of everybody. Every, that's why I laugh. I told a joke last week. People thought that, that Barack Obama was the Antichrist because he was so popular. Uh, I had people who came up to me, very, very serious, and they saw that sea of people at the Washington Mall when he was inaugurated. I mean, it was unbelievable. There's a very famous photo that's been shot where you can see every single person's face uh, in, across that whole sea of people. And uh, people said to me, do you think he's the Antichrist? Look how popular he is. No, no, the Antichrist will be even more popular than that. The masses will will follow this man uh, to their own peril. The masses will. But I, I do believe there'll be a minority that won't, that won't. Great question. What about you, Evo? Yes? Yes, I do. Uh, so I do believe in a rapture, um, and interestingly enough, I heard from uh, I heard from an individual this week. Had coffee with them, and um, they had they had brought someone to our church, and I talked about the rapture, and the person was very very disturbed, extremely disturbed by this idea of the rapture. So the rapture, which used to be preached on a whole lot more than it is today, uh, the rapture is the idea that the church, the believers on planet earth will be removed from the earth before this period of tribulation happens on the earth. So, and if you're, if you're of our stripe and brand in terms of theology, you think this will happen before the tribulation. So we call that a pre-tribulation rapture. So, so that literally means that all of you who, who claim the name of Christ in this room, you will vanish from the planet and be immediately brought into the presence of God before this time of wrath comes on the earth. I do believe that that will happen. Uh, I could be wrong, but I do believe it. Um, and I also believe that during this time of tribulation, people still have an opportunity to repent. They still do, and we saw it even today by reading these chapters. So I think that people do have an opportunity. Uh, I'm aware that there is teaching that says that they're not. I would disagree with it. I think that God always, always, always gives people a chance as long as they have breath in their lungs, uh, they have an opportunity to repent. Amazing question. Man, you guys are really thinking. I'll take a couple more for the next two minutes. Yes. Yes. Yes, uh, I treat near-death experiences with caution. Um, there are many of them, and they have many striking similarities. Um, you know, you have people who they, they, they were physically dead, they were brain dead, they were dead by a doctor's definition, 
And yet, you know, a half an hour later, they're able to revive them and they speak of experiences that they had, that they saw, that they felt that are very, very real. We call them near-death experiences. And many of them, there's a commonality to them. You know, they see a bright light and they feel peace and this kind of thing. Uh, I treat them very cautiously because uh, in the New Testament, Paul had one. So Paul, in, in I think it's 2 Corinthians, speaking of himself in the third person, he says, I know a man who went to the seventh heaven, I think it is, or the third heaven. I forget, I have to read the text. But he says, he says, he saw things and heard things that were inexpressible. And he's told, don't tell them to anybody. So my question is, when people have these near-death experiences, you know, they come back from the other side, as it were, and wow, they're writing books, and they're selling books, and they're making movies and all this, and some of them are incredibly intriguing. But my question is, why did Paul not do that? Why did he not give all the information of what he saw? He was told, what you heard and what you saw, you will keep your mouth shut. I don't know why, but I just find we're very eager to talk about it, and Paul was not. So that's why I treat them with caution. But those experiences are very real. When people have those experiences, nothing anyone says will convince them that they didn't have it. Um, and there's some very convincing testimonies from those experiences. There's a movie out. Um, I forget the title of it, but you have a boy who heaven is for real. This is a very convincing testimony. This boy who, who had a near-death experience and in heaven saw his sibling who had passed away without the boy's knowledge. So how is it that he's able to, to see, I think it's his sister in the movie, and he didn't know that that, that that child had died. So how was he able to know that? And this is a very, very convincing testimony. But again, I take it, I take it with a grain of salt uh, because when I look into the scripture, Paul was cautioned very strongly to, for lack of better words, keep his mouth shut about what he saw and heard. Now, because I've read people who've had near-death experiences and the things that they say they saw are unscriptural, anti-Christian. I mean, you, the theology is wrong. The, the Everything is messed up about it. And, but their experience is very real to them. And then I see others who've had near-death experiences, and I read their experience, say, yeah, that lines up with Scripture, that lines up with Scripture. Okay, good, check, check, I check the boxes, right? So I have to be very careful when I run into them. But what they do show and what they do help people understand is that whole question of the other side. And this is why I say we can't claim ignorance on this and say, oh, well, God never even suggested to us that there was another side. No, I think he's made it abundantly clear. Yeah, great question. We'll do one more from Simon in the back. If the projector shuts off, don't worry. He's on a time schedule. Go ahead. a great question. Uh, first of all, Islam will overtake Christianity uh, worldwide. Uh, most scholars agree to this. 
Uh, and it's not because of evangelism per se, it's because of reproduction. <laughs> so so uh, Muslim families have a lot of kids. Uh, it's part of the whole culture. And uh, just by the fact of reproduction and by the fact that usually in a Muslim family, you're going to profess Islam. Uh, by that fact, within the next 10 years, a lot of scholars say that Islam is going to overtake Christianity um, as the, the most um, you know, popular, if you want to use that word, religion in the world. There's a difference between popularity and truth, uh, however, and something can be extremely popular and yet extremely untrue. So here you have in the book of Revelation, this antichrist is popular jusqu'au bout. He's, he's so popular, he's mega popular, he makes Barack Obama look like, look like nobody. So he's very, very popular, but he has deceived the entire world, except for this remnant who are told you have to have patience and endurance through this time. So I think that what we may see uh, and this, again, is total speculation, is that this Antichrist figure will develop some kind of religious view that people will adhere to. Who knows? Maybe he'll play upon popular religions of the day. Maybe he'll create a mishmash of religion. Uh, there's a school of thought out there that says that he's going to arise from the Roman Catholic Church. Um, I'm very cautious with that view. You know, there are people who say that the woman who rides the beast is the Catholic Church and the Vatican. I mean, that's really, really dangerous to say. I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm just saying, man, you're really pushing the text. That's a lot of speculation. Um, so it may be true that that Antichrist plays on some type of world religion that's very popular at the time. Um, because people are already following it. That, that may be plausible, but it's still speculation. Yeah. Wow, you guys asked some amazing questions. I'm glad that I opened the floor. Is there any more? Going once. Going, going twice, no? All right, why don't you stand with me? I'm just going to close it in prayer. The musicians don't need to come. We've got one more week, and you really want to hang in until the last week because Revelation 19, 20, 21, and 22, oh, dripping with hope and, and transformation and all things new, all right? So you can catch up by listening online. Go to our website and you'll hear every, every episode there. Father, we thank you today. We thank you, God, that there is so much that we can learn even when we look into this period of time, be it in the future, be it, as some say, in the past, Lord, we learn about you and we learn about us. And I pray, God, uh, that we would turn the question toward our own hearts, Lord, and that we would look into our own soul, into, uh, into the mirror, and ask ourselves, what have we done uh, with the message of salvation? God, what have we done with what you have shown us of yourself? And Lord, I pray for people who are in this room and there's a decision and a choice that we each make on a daily basis. Lord, may it be for us not to rebel, not to resist, but to surrender to you. Even as we sang earlier, you are good. 
Lord, be the king of my heart. May it be true in our lives. Lord, I pray for people who are struggling in that area. And there is a, perhaps another God that, that uh, attracts their attention. Uh, maybe it's some type of lifestyle. Maybe it's some type of behavior. Maybe it's some type of sin pattern that they cannot break. I pray in the name of Jesus, Lord, confront us with yourself and help us to look into that proverbial uh, mirror. Lord, we pray for the event next Saturday. And we pray, God, that there would be people who, who would be just uh, challenged, uh, even disturbed by the simple message of salvation. And Lord, I pray that the place would just be filled with people who don't know you. Uh, help us this week, Lord, as many of us try to share our faith in various ways. Enable us to do so through the power of the Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.